This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. I'm Michael Grosvenor. And I'm Jack Fernino. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's songs and history and what his music has meant to us. Nineteen sixty nine should have been the year that Billy Joel broke through. Today, we know it would be another few years before his solo career began, and a few more after that until things really took off. Instead, the end of the decade saw his longtime band put out a second album that went nowhere. Then the duo he formed after barely got off the ground. It must have felt like an anticlimactic end to a decade that saw Billy's career gaining momentum over the previous five years, especially without the knowledge of what was ahead. Now, in hindsight, 1969 holds few clues to Billy's work in the decades to come. Apart from a few interesting press clips and a couple notable encounters, there's not much on the record. We may get more information on this part of Billy Joel's history in the form of a new biopic that is now in pre-production. But for now, 1969 feels like a footnote at the beginning of the big story we all know today. Join us as we dig into Billy Joel in 1969 and the news of a movie that may explore that period even further. So before we get into 1969, this is a great time to talk about a recent and somewhat controversial announcement in the Billy Joel world. Now, we were a few weeks behind because we record in advance, but we did uh, do our best to get this out as close as we could to the news. You know, as you know, Billy has had quite a storied past and is not always terribly well documented as we've uncovered while doing this podcast, but a, um, a figure in Billy's Past, notably from the 60s and very early 70s, a family member is set to uh, put together a, a biopic of sorts about the early years of Billy Joel. And it's actually the son of one Artie Rip, and that is Adam Rip. He is working on a film chronicling the late 60s and early 70s portion of Billy's career, and notably also the story of Erwin Mazur, who was Billy's manager at the time. So the flagship article, I would say, came out... March 9th on, in Variety, it was Billy Joel biopic Piano Man greenlit by Michael Jai White's Gigantic Studios, exclusive. A Billy Joel biopic titled Piano Man is in the works at Michael Jai White's Gigantic Studios with Adam Ripp attached to write and direct. The biopic will follow Joel's early years from being discovered by Erwin Mazur, who managed the band The Hassles, 
that Joel joined as a teenager to his breakout performance in 1972 that captured the attention of Clive Davis. However, Billy Joel's rep says that Joel is not involved with the film project and that no rights in music, name, likeness, or life story will be granted. Instead, Gigantic has acquired the life rights to Mazur, who is Joel's music rep from 1970 to 1972, the year before his commercial breakthrough. Mazur's father owned the Long Island Club where Billy Joel got his start with the Hassles in 1966. Joel's hit album and song Piano Man were released in 1973. Now, I'll say this, uh, by the way, we talked to Adam back in, I think, January, and uh, he had mentioned this in passing, and we've been... uh, trying to get Adam and Artie actually on the podcast for an interview. And uh, I was really hoping we could at least get Adam on uh, for this one. So, you know, the, the invitation's still open. We hope we hear back from you soon. Uh, but we did need to jump on this, you know, because we wanted to be as timely as possible with it. Uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll speak to what we can on it, but we're hoping to get some, uh, some more insight from Adam himself soon. We did have a good chat with him offline uh, back in January, talked a bit about our podcast and, you know, kind of what um, he was up to. And his dad already certainly wants to get some things on the record and, you know, talk a little more candidly about his involvement and time with Billy. And, you know, I think that's still certainly some interesting stories to be told because Billy certainly has his version of it and it's been honed in over the years. You know how we've talked about, you know, Billy kind of lands on a story and that kind of becomes the narrative. And, you know, with everything, there are so many facets and so many sides to it. So I'm certainly interested to hear his story and, you know, kind of where he was coming from at that time. And I, I certainly hope we have a chance to talk with him because no matter how you slice it, he's a very important figure in Billy's career. One thing, you know, Adam's been pretty vocal on the uh, retold page. He's been met with some support and some derision. Uh, one post that really caught my eye was where he talked about how it's going to get into the Long Island music scene and like the CD underbelly of it, which is not something we hear about all that often, especially in, in relation to Billy Joel. Like we just know that he was in it, you know, and he was, he was playing and there were these clubs and stuff. So, you know, even if there are no rights to Billy's music or likeness and things like that, I think that's an interesting story in and of itself to tell. So that's sort of exciting to know we're going to get a look at that. Yeah. See, that's interesting. People have been saying, well, it's like, well, you know, if you can't use Billy's name, likeness or music, what's the point? You know, Billy's the reason for this coming together. But there's so many ways you can slice this story where he doesn't need to be the focal character. And it can if it's written well and put together well, I think it still can be a compelling story even without the rights to any of that. But it's got to be done in a way to, to execute it right. But it's certainly possible. I guess the movie we assumed was going to pick up mostly when Artie came into the picture, which would be mostly after the Long Island scene. You know, this is even after Attila, and Billy goes out to California to record the album. You know, interesting story in and of itself. You know, I doubted we were going to hear about, like, any of the parts of it that got botched. And, you know, certainly, you know, Artie's, I, you know... His image, I think, has improved a little over the years where, with hindsight being 2020 and, you know, knowing where we are now, it's become, well, yeah, you know, things didn't go great and it was probably not a great deal, but we did get Billy out of it. It was the shot in the arm that he needed. It was his first solo album. That's what got things started. What I've gathered after, you know, just listening to a lot of these stories over the years is that, yes, Billy Joel signed a bad deal that very heavily protected Artie Rip's interests. 
Artie did front a lot of money to get Billy going. He put together a contract, which Billy signed, but it just heavily favored him. And it sounds like he signed away a lot of things, which in hindsight was a very bad move, but clearly it was in a contract. It wasn't like the Frank Weber situation where it was like money was literally being stolen from accounts. Adam points out that, you know, Artie did uh, invest a sizable sum, and I don't have it offhand, but I know it would be equal to like something like three to $10 million today or something crazy like that. Yeah. You know, he wanted to be in it to recoup. So yeah, there's a lot to it, but yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting. I'm almost more interested to hear about the Long Island music scene, because I mean, let's be honest, you know, we're not going to get the behind the scenes of the making of Cold Spring Harbor because people just don't write movies about that. People write or people produce eight hour Beatles documentaries about that. Right. And certainly not about the most obscure album in the Beatles catalog, you know, something like yeah. that. So yeah, I'm, I'm interested to see what comes out about the, the Long Island music scene. As for not having the rights, I'm curious to know if he just straight up cannot say Billy Joel. Yeah. We're not sure about that yet. It was pretty unclear as to what, if anything, you know, they said no rights to name likeness or music will be granted. But, you know, again, you know, I'm not a legal scholar and I'm definitely not an entertainment lawyer. So I don't know, you know, I'm I'm sure, you know, his people are going to look at this and they're going to walk the line and use as much as they can legally get away with. Exactly. However, I, I know they're using the title Piano Man because it's a recognizable term, but I think that's a big miss. Yeah, well, the problem is everything's going to happen pre-Piano right. Man. You know, he does say that it's it's going to go up to the uh, the performance for Clive Davis. Was Piano Man written by then? I honestly don't know. You're, I don't know that there's a set list out there anywhere. I, I just feel like there could be a more creative title that, that makes it sound like an interesting oh, yeah. film. Cold Spring Harbor would be a good one because it's the name of the album. Everybody Loves You Now. Yeah, I know. You wanted Everybody Loves Me Now. I'm saying at least Cold Spring Harbor because it's the name of the yeah. album. And it's the town on Long Island, right. so it works both yep. ways. Or Hour of the Wolf. Just go with Hour of the Wolf, bro. <laughs> it's cool. March of the Huns. March of the Huns, yeah. Wonder Woman. No, no, wait. California Flash. <laughs> yeah. I like that one. <laughs> but I'll say this, though. Um, Piano Man wasn't on Sigma Sounds. It wasn't written by then, right? Unless it was cut off the, the broadcast, but I don't think that it was. Right. So what I'm saying, yeah. So I'm thinking that Piano Man either wasn't written or wasn't done or hadn't been performed yet because in part that show that caught the attention of Clive Davis. Yeah. Or caught the attention of Columbia Records. Right. We'll see what happens. But for now, uh, we're going to dig up everything we can on Billy's doings in the year 1969. Fear and something gray has passed beside you in the ever fading light. Time. Has no more meaning, all you know is that there's terror in the night What causes all your nerves to scream? It is a nightmare, not a dream It is the hour of the wolf You know what's funny about 1969 for Billy Joe Michael? What's that? The more I look at what was going on at the beginning of this year, the more it seems like this was supposed to be the big break. When you look at all the sort of ramp up that was going on, this should have worked for him. When we did 1971 last year, we were talking about how despondent he was, you know, sort of looking at this year kind of puts that into perspective. And I, I don't think anything cataclysmic happened, but for anyone that's like taking a shot at something, 
And if it didn't crash and burn, it just didn't do what it was supposed to. You know, you get the feeling that maybe that's what was happening here, especially after a good couple of years with the hassles. You know, this should have been their uh, real coming out party. It seemed like they were poised to be the next big thing out of Long Island. This was looking to be a big year, and it seems like the rug just came out from under them pretty quickly. If you look at the years that followed, there was a succession of events that just were, you know, detrimental to Billy's musical career and his mental health. And, you know, we're entering a rough period for sure. It's funny then when in the liner notes for Songs in the Attic, he mentions his dismal experience in Woodstock. That really sums up the year. (laughs) You know, like it was supposed to be this. It wasn't. I left. Everything wasn't what it was supposed to be. And he was the outsider again. August is a, is a ways away on this one. We're going to actually start in November of the year before to set up what happens. Uh, even still, there's not really too much out there to talk about. We dug up whatever we could. We also got some help from one of our regular listeners, Jeff Fisher, who keeps a pretty good archive of uh, Billy Joel press clippings and other memorabilia. He gave us what he had, and he actually has uh, one or two pretty interesting gems. But all in all, there wasn't really much... To go on this year which was surprising being that there was an album release this hassles album which we'll talk about as we get into the year was a big change for billy because we had john desick who was the front man of the hassles departing the band and the lead vocals shifting solely to billy where he only did it part-time on the last album this ended up being the first big shift for billy that would i think ultimately lead toward him becoming a front man and ultimately a solo artist. And once again, you know, in the path to being a solo artist, when you put the first Hassles album at the beginning of a timeline from there to Cold Spring Harbor, it just it just seems like the balloon got too big and burst. First one was some basic blue eyes soul. This one was kind of psychedelic. The Hassles went so overboard that Billy Joe retreats to the point where the, the first song on his solo album is just a tender ballad on the guitar. Things were looking to be all over the place during this period of time. Four very distinct Billy Joel eras of music in such a short period of time. That's what really blows me away is how how quick all of this happened. With that in mind, let's set the scene in late 1968. So Jeff Fisher makes the guess that Hour of the Wolf is recorded in the fall, which makes sense because the first single from it predates the album release. Four o'clock in the morning comes out late 1968, possibly in November. It's the first salvo in what seems to be a step towards expanding from the more straight ahead blue eyed soul of their first album. Producer Tony Kay was credited, so to speak, with letting them go pretty nuts in the studio, being as self indulgent as they wanted to be. Billy refers to a lot of it as, quote, psychedelic bullshit. <laughs> and that's yeah. perhaps true of the 11 minute title track, which is it's pretty cool. It's got some cool stuff going on in there. Even if the other songs are a little more straight ahead. So on the heels of, or just in advance of that single release, the Hassles play the factory in Syosset on Long Island. Friday and Saturday night, December 6th and 7th. They're the headliners. And the other bands are Days Between, D-A-Z-E, and Trampling Hum. And it's always fun looking at different band names that are around. And then also on this uh, flyer that uh, Jeff sent us, we have, quote, coming soon, rich kids, vagrants, butterflies, and happiness is. So as far as I'm concerned, the first two could have been like punk bands in my high school in the 90s. 
And the second two are like yeah. so late 60s kinds of uh, band names. <laughs> There's a Verve Pipe song called Happiness Is, so that kind of made me chuckle. Oh, is that really? Yeah, it was on their uh, underneath album. So we're figuring that the band recorded Hour of the Wolf uh, late in 1968. There's really no exact dates out there. What we do know is that it was produced by Thomas Jefferson Kay, who was sort of like an underground sort of dude, uh, later worked with Steely Dan. You know, and, and you know, apparently, you know, he was he was kind of okay with with letting anything go. The sessions took took months. It says uh, I'm I'm reading out of Fred Scherer's book here. It says some of the group, some of the bunch were smoking hash, but John and Billy abstained. Quote: The drug-addled process went on endlessly. A bunch of people are smoking hash. There's a lot of people tripping on acid. In the middle of all this, apparently Judy Garland of all people shows up and just slumps down on a sofa for a while. Uh, she would pass away the next year, but that's a pretty random pop-in for some, some band on Long Island. Yeah. Ironically, of course, uh, as they're recording this, German movie comes out, directed by Ingmar Bergman, called Hour of the Wolf in 1968. Uh, no relation to these uh, recordings. Quite a coincidence, though. I mean, what are the odds? Yeah, you think you find something like that out, and you're like, well, this is just synchronicity. You know, it's, uh, it's going to happen for me now. <laughs> and, uh, you know, apparently not. Right. This is also around the point where Billy takes over lead vocals. Uh, it's when John Dezik leaves the band. And, you know, nothing against John Dezik, but, you know, I, you know, we had talked about how the the hassles did make quite a shift between albums. I'd be very curious to to see what, like, early hassles would have been like with Billy fronting the band. Yeah, you wonder if, if it would have taken a different direction faster. Obviously, he was proven to be a, such a strong singer early on, and so it made sense to propone him to the permanent lead vocalist for the last album. But I, again, I'm very glad that that ended up being the case because had the Hassles not done that and had they sought out a new frontman, who knows, that may have never given Billy the push to go the direction he did. Nevertheless, you know, the release of this album pretty much is spells the end of the band, which, uh, you know, is it's funny because it's something that isn't all that uncommon, although it usually happens, I think, with, with the first album. Michael, I'm sure you're very aware of or familiar with, you know, plenty of bands that struggle and struggle and struggle and finally get that first album made on maybe a major label or even a semi-decent indie. And then that's just it. A lot of bands just don't make it through that that leap to the next to the next level for whatever reason. And then a lot of artists, too, uh, have, you know, what is known in the industry as the sophomore slump where... As the story goes, you've got your whole life to write your first record and then six months to write your second. Yeah, well, you get like these songs that are road tested and fine tuned over like, you know, how many how many gigs and how many years or months at least. And they all make it on the first album and then just got to write the follow up real quick. Because of, you know, having all that time to get the material for your first album, you're kind of doing the A&R work ahead of time. You're weeding out the songs that are weakest just over time. Yeah, and so by the time you get to that first record, oftentimes you have a fairly refined set of songs. But album number two, it's tricky to be able to continue that. You know, you don't have the luxury of time, the luxury of all of that. So it's it's really hard for a lot of artists to make that transition and to be able to do a second album that's as well thought out as the first. So Hour of the Wolf goes nowhere. Sort of backing that idea up is the fact that Nobody seems to have any reviews or promos or anything for this album. The one thing we do have, uh, which once again comes courtesy of Jeff Fisher, 
is a little like sort of, I guess, a, like a novelty column. I don't know what you would call it from uh, the Daily News, August 10th, 1969. So this is already quite a few months after the album was released. I guess we'll jump ahead to this and then sort of jump back chronologically. Sure. So it's this uh, column called Strictly Youthville by Adam DePetto. DePetto. Um, and it's just one of those things where it's like a couple quick sentences about random whatnots, I guess you would say. I'll just read this whole thing because it's short and it'll just kind of give you an idea of where uh, the hassles mentioned sits in all this. So it just says, Shining example, an RCA recording group surely must have the oldest member of any rock combo. He's 46-year-old Don Witten, cellist with Lighthouse, a 13-man exploratory rock band. Again, doesn't this sound like something you hear about, like, maybe now or 10, 15 years ago? You know, like one of these, come across one of these bands kicking around in the clubs you play. You know, you, you just like, you're waiting to go on. You're like, what the hell is this? These guys are going to take forever to come off the stage. Yeah. Uh, anyway, 13 totally. man exploratory rock band. Quote, up to now, he says, my 17 year old son always thought I was a square. But since I let my hair grow longer, I became a groove. And then parentheses. I let my hair grow long and nobody noticed. Next entry. Give me a substantial cheer to the Devons, winners of the Schaefer TV Talent Hunt Contest, who recently entertained the boys in the battle zones of Vietnam. Hip, hip. Next, power of positive picketing. What's this country coming to? A group called the Chrysler Spurlows had the audacity to march peacefully into a high school. They were stressing safe driving practices and highway citizenship via their, quote, music for modern Americans safety show. And speaking of picketing, a new product on the market is for the picket who heaves everything. It's a sign-making kit with more than 5,300 black or red gummed letters and numerals. That's a pretty interesting time capsule of the late 60s where people were selling uh, picket sign-making kits. You're right. That is really interesting. I mean, that's something that, you know, I don't ever recall in my lifetime. But, you know, that was such a part of that time in American history that it's really interesting to see you know, how that was being portrayed. And so we get the final entry here, which, you know, I guess is better than in the middle because maybe you're, you're going to, your eye's going to go down to it or you're going to remember it. But anyway, and the last entry is The Hassles, a driving rock group, have their own press agent, Mrs. R. Nyman, the grandmother of Billy Joel, soloist. Anyway, she wrote to remind me of their zingy LP, The Hour of the Wolf, which grandma figures to be a howling success. <laughs> and that is it. <laughs> uh, that is about as much press as that that album got. You know, it's funny because this comes out in August, and by then the band is pretty much done. They do release another single, Night After Day, in mm -hmm. uh, May. And we should also mention, by the way, the artwork for the album is done by Ruby Mazur. Funny enough, of no relation to Erwin Mazur, who is the band's manager at the time. And Ruby has her is a pretty storied designer. He has worked. With a number of artists, uh, Rolling Stones, B.B. King, Jimmy Buffett, Dave Mason, Dusty Springfield, Elton John. I mean, just some legends is in the business. Ruby is also at the center of a battle between the ownership of the famed Rolling Stones logo. Yeah. So, you know, once again, it's it, there's all this sort of coincidence and, and kismet of sorts seeming to go on, you know, um, a famed director makes an album of the same name halfway across the world. Their album art is done by someone with the same last name as their manager. And despite all that, man, this just was not to be. The album doesn't go anywhere. And this pretty much sets the stage for Attila 
because uh, Billy and John were the least interested in any sort of psychedelics. You know, Billy Joel talks about how he failed the acid test. So he took it, what, two or three times and just had right. a horrible experience every single time and just never really got into it. So as a result, you know, he and John Small became sort of their own unit within the Hassles. And as the group finally faded away, you know, they were the two left together and they would go on to start putting together Attila, which we're figuring it happens at the end of 1969, although the album comes out in 1970. Based on the book talking about the recording sessions for the Hour of the Wolf album, you could see the alienation just by circumstance already in play during the recording session. So I think by the time they were making the record, the writing was on the wall that John and Billy were going to be, you know, on their way out soon one way or the other, because I think they were just drifting further apart from the rest of them. Right. Right. So although there's no mention any, although there doesn't seem to be any record of them specifically, we know that they were playing some clubs. Uh, they were still doing club dates at the time. Nothing too big, but John and Billy at that point were noticing that you know the the blue eyed soul thing was the blue eyed soul thing is going out of fashion. You know it's time to go to the next thing, and you know the next thing seems to be going heavy, which is true. And I, I guess this is the point where I start looking at what else came out in 1969. It's a huge year. Any any, any year between 1966 and I guess 72 is just filled with landmark albums, but. This is an interesting year. First of all, in terms of heaviness, let's remember that at the time, Led Zeppelin One and Inagata DeVita by Iron Butterfly come out around the same time. And in a situation that seems patently absurd today, there was question as to which of these two groups was going to be the one, was gonna, which, which was going right. to sort of emerge victorious over the other. And, uh, you know, Iron Butterfly really squeaked by on this one, right? I mean, uh, you know, I don't hear about much of this quote-unquote Led Zeppelin anymore. Yeah, I, I just don't think they're going to work. <laughs> if bands like the Little Rascals were doing well just a few years ago, uh, you know, <laughs> let's take a Wait. <laughs> Did I catch the you young... by surprise? No, you said the Little Rascals. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, the Young Rascals, the Little Rascals. Right. Semantics. We put together Buckwheat doing uh, Good Lovin'. <laughs> Yeah, there's no way that's not going to be offensive in 2022. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. So you know the the kind of blue eyed soul, the young rascals, and I guess even Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheel stuff like that is quickly going out of fashion. But just to put this in again to put in perspective, Zeppelin one and Zeppelin two come out. The Who go from pop art, you know, a la a quick one while he's away, or uh, the Who sell out into the double LP Tommy, the famed rock opera. Uh, the Beatles drop Abbey Road, which, yeah, to be honest, isn't one of my favorites, but is certainly a step forward in terms of uh, studio sophistication. If Sgt. Pepper was endlessly exploratory, Abbey Road really set the blueprint for more conventional rock and pop that was to come that could also incorporate, you know, as much studio wizardry as you can kind of cram in there. You know, some decent synthesizers, uh, stitching together songs, suites, things like that. Uh, in the Court of the Crimson King comes out, which, you know, when you hear that, you wonder if that album didn't have an influence on the ha on the Attila album that was to come. You know, you don't think yeah. of, of King Crimson as heavy, but they were seriously, you know, they were trippy without being druggy. I mean, those guys were players. Billy certainly was. So, you know, there's, there's a weird sort of connection there. The Summer of Love was starting to fade away, and you had right on the cusp of heavy metal really starting to become a thing. 
Deep Purple already had a couple albums under their belt, but they were shifting. You know, you had the Black Sabbath debut album and the Paranoid album in 1970. So that's almost on its way. Music was going through a big change, just like the America was as well. And so it was uh, interesting to see where Billy changed along with what was happening musically. As I'm looking at some of these albums too, you know, what you see is like something like everybody knows this is nowhere by Neil Young comes out. And that, that's sort of like a, a, a sort of a breakdown in a way coming from Buffalo Springfield, you know, it's just all of a sudden stripped down and raw MC five, the Stooges. Those are the bands that are uh, taking sort of that blue eyed soul, that, that pop thing uh, to the next manic level as Mitch Ryder on, uh, on steroids or possibly crank <laughs> miles. Da- <laughs> miles Davis puts out in a silent way, big break from the, his biggest break yet from traditional jazz. Got some Zappa going on, but we're going to assume that that doesn't hold much, <laughs> hold much sway. Certainly nothing we've ever heard him talk about, but I'll damn well talk about it. <laughs> oh, heck yeah. Well, you do have some more traditional stuff. I mean, Chicago comes out, uh, you know, the, their first album comes out. Santana, surpri- almost surprisingly, is 1969. Yeah. Well, I guess that makes sense. It just seems like they're almost outdated at this point, although they really crack off like three huge albums and then they sort of fade uh, yeah. from sort of certainly cultural relevance. Uh, Stand by Sly and the Family Stone, certainly taking, you know, like soul and R&B to yeah. weird places. You could see where the hassles are sort of like, sort of keeping up, but not really. You know, they're, they're, they may be a couple months or a half album too late. They're not making the transition at the right time. They're probably not in the right mental state to make the transition properly. You know, and so it gets left behind. We do see one more single, which is Traveling Band in 1969, and that's just after Billy goes to Woodstock. Yeah, and Billy has talked about that Woodstock experience, and it, it's funny. It has always been hailed as the, you know, the culmination of the summer of love. You know, it's like the big moment, the big thing. But, you know, by so many accounts, it really signified the end of it. And that certainly seemed to be the case for Billy. It was like suddenly like, oh, this is all over. This whole period of my life is over now. Right. So before he splits from the hassles, though, and before Attila takes hold, he does get some session work. He plays actually with Chubby Checker uh, and works with producer Shadow Morton uh, to produce a few tracks. Shadow Morton, and this is probably around the time he he plays uh, on Leader of the Pack, although, you know, as the story goes, Billy Joe plays on Leader of the Pack by the Shangri-Las, but no one knows to this day if he played on the demo or the released version of it. Oh, but Shadow Morton, no, funny enough, we were just talking about them. Shadow Morton also produced Inagata De Vida. Oh, okay. He also discovered the vanilla, well, he discovered the, the group that became the Vanilla Fudge, produced their albums. And Vanilla Fudge was another uh, Long Island band, right? Although they made it a little further than they the Hassles. Yeah, Carmine yeah. Apiece. Yep. Yeah. So we see, you know, we see these little connections here and there. The Hassles are on the way out. Billy wants to go see Jimi Hendrix. He comes home beforehand, but still, he's inspired enough to get a wah wah pedal and hook it up to the organ as he starts writing uh, what will become Attila. Yeah, and it's amazing because we're about to turn the corner into the seventies, and by most accounts, the very early seventies is is the birth of heavy metal really coming into the forefront because pretty soon you're going to have Black Sabbath and you're going to have Judas Priest coming up in the 70s and you're going to have the new wave of British heavy metal and Deep Purple are going to be shifting into a little darker, heavier sound. And 
So a lot of that's going to be coming along in the 70s. And certainly, like we say with Attila, it's geared more towards that than the psychedelia that he was coming out of from the hassles. You know, this is his foray into that. So we find out, too, that uh, once, you know, Billy and John Small split from the hassles, they hole up in the basement of uh, the wallpaper store owned by John's parents. And they actually get a sponsorship deal with plush amplifiers uh, who had amp cases with uh, black vinyl padding that were also pretty loud, which became obviously a big, a big part of the Attila stage show for as long as that lasted. It says that uh, John Small actually got the uh, electrocuted a few times trying to uh, trying to figure out how to hook up the trying to figure out how to wire up the organ to the amplifiers. Oh, that's which, funny. Uh, hey, man, that's some dedication. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, you know, Erwin Manzer is, is still managing, obviously, at this point. Uh, he does what he could, and he gets them set up with Epic Records. But that's going to be more of the story for 1970, as we find out later. Well, I yeah. actually, as we touched on already. And I think that's it. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm very curious as to who of you out there were fans of the Hassles back in 69 and 68 and all of that. And who saw the Hassles at My Father's Place and... Who, who saw them play that two night stand in Syosset. I'm curious if, you know, you were hip to what Billy Joel was doing back then. And what was it like seeing the hassles and, you know, the whole Long Island rock and roll scene would love to hear your experiences back then. If you, uh, if you remember. Yeah, please reach out. We'd really love to, to get more about that. You know, from what I've gathered, you know, you know, from speaking with, uh, especially Russell and, and Lib, and even you know, seeing if you if you happen to see the Twisted Sister documentary on Netflix, although that was a quite a few years later, they sort of go into that too. It was a hopping scene, man. It was his own. It was its own thing. Very different from what was probably going on. Well, very different than what was going on in like Manhattan and Greenwich Village, places like that. You know, it was more more covers, more rock and roll, more straight ahead stuff. Uh, but it was it was its own ecosystem for sure, and it's one that sustained a lot of people for a lot of years. You know, even into the 1980s. And it's funny because it, it seems like, you know, a lot of those bands ran in those circles. You know, you, you heard the stories when, with Russell talking about they used to go see Billy play in the hassles. And, you know, they used to see each other's bands before they were all playing together. And so everyone, you know, was supportive and would go see everybody. And everyone knew who the great players were. So it was, you know, only a matter of time before, like, the super group started forming. They would cherry pick musicians yeah from these different bands and and uh you know move on to something better so yeah definitely reach out we want to know about what it was like out on the island there back in the late 60s if anybody remembers picking up by any chance hour of the wolf if anybody saw any of these shows uh by all means please reach out uh glasshouses podcast at gmail.com glasshouses a billy joel podcast on instagram facebook and twitter and of course if you listen to us on apple podcasts Go ahead and give us that five-star rating and positive review. Uh, every five-star rating and positive review lets that good old algorithm know that we are a podcast of merit and it should push us in front of new people. It is a fast, easy, and free way to help support the podcast and the community. And insert something witty here. <laughs> <laughs> yep, something, something Woodstock. I don't know. <laughs> we'll see you guys next time. All right, we'll see you soon, everyone. Thanks.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 